Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Rene Yao, who is founder and CIO for hedge fund Neo Ivy, which is a fund using AI and leading edge science and technology in the investing process. Given that AI-driven investing is just such a topical space right now, I thought this is just a wonderful time to be sitting down with a true leader in the space. I'm really looking forward to hearing from Renee on how she leverages this technology within the investment sphere. So, Renee, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Alois. That's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I'm excited to share my experience in terms of AI. Rene, could you start by setting the scene and introducing yourself and your firm in your own words? Sure, happy to. So I was born in China. And when I was a young kid, I showed a natural interest in hardcore science like math and computer science. And when I was little, I visited my uncle who was in a team member of the Milky Way First Chinese Supercomputer Research Lab. And his lab is the size of two giant rooms. And that really intrigues me. I set up my dream to become a researcher in math or computer science since then. And then when I grew up, I went to the United States, went to University of Kansas, got my math degree, and then went to Columbia to continue my PhD study. And then I was thinking about maybe starting a career as a professor. However, on my third year, I got a call from a recruiter from Citadel asking if I'm interested in talking to one of the top hedge funds on Wall Street. So I'm curious to learn how hedge fund works. So I did. And I was talking to my future boss back then, and then he showed me how Ken Griffin started his hedge fund empire from his Harvard dorm. And that was quite exciting. So I decided to postpone my PhD study and join Citadel as a quant researcher to help them build the mid-frequency statistical arbitrage trading strategy. And then after Citadel, I joined WorldQuant Millennia to become a portfolio manager, working alongside with Igor Trovensky. And it is also at the same time, I start building my team. And then after work one, I joined a prop trading firm called HAP, where we start to foresee all their equity trading business. And then later, Molinia, the parent company of WorkQuant, offered to seed us as New Ivy. So that's when we start to have our own independent firm, New Ivy. Brilliant. And before I quiz you about Neo Ivy, out of interest, did you ever complete your PhD? No, not yet. Probably after I retire. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. Well, I guess the pace of learning in this space must be much faster than anything else you could be doing anyway right now. Yes, exactly. You learn everything new every day in your work. (laughs) Yeah. So after we set up New Ivy in 2015, 
we start trading in 2016 with supplementary accounts. And then because performance was very good, so in 2017, 2018, we were able to launch our Comingo fund in 2018. And we were able to launch that without the need of any seeder. So the firm is owned 100% by the employees. And in 2019, we become fully registered with SEC. And now we've had more than seven years of track record. And we have maintained our close collaborations with universities and institutions to maintain our competitive edge. Fascinating. And I guess for context for our listeners, can you describe the size of Neo-Ivy at this stage in terms of number of employees or any other metrics? Yes, absolutely. We are a boutique firm with about 200 million regulatory AUM with 10 people and 70% of them research focused. We've delivered a return of TBO plus 5 to 8% with no beta exposure and a growth sharp close to 2. Throughout the years, I've been the one who's been doing research, answering potential investor inbound inquiries, doing conference presentations, and then run the business. So it's a lot of work. <laughs> Luckily this year, we welcomed our first head of business development person, Stephen, so I can free up my time to focus on my research side. That's fantastic. So can we turn to your techniques then? I introduced them as leading edge and AI-based, but what exactly are you doing here and how would you argue it's differentiated versus others? So machine learning itself isn't a new topic. In fact, the very elementary machine learning probably dates back to 1950s, where people use principal component analysis or logistic regression to try to learn historic patterns. And then they hope the computer will find some patterns from the historic data, and then the same pattern will still hold in the future. So basically, history will repeat itself. However, later, there are more sophisticated machine learning approach like support vector machine, random forest, artificial neural network. All of that follows the same pattern, which is looking at lagging indicator, looking at historic data, trying to do pattern recognition, data mining from historic data. Now, a good example of that approach is IBM's Deep Blue logo, which IBM built in 1990s, and they use that to beat the Russian chess championship. So the tricky thing about chess game is... It has so many well-defined rules, like knights can only move in certain ways, kings can only move in certain ways. So that's why after each step, you only have finite possible next solutions. And that's why, as long as you have enough computing power, you can literally use brutal force search to have your computer go through every possible scenario and give you the highest winning hand. However, in reality, we don't have that luxury because we don't know where SP is going to end by the year end. And when we drive on the road, we never know what's going to happen if there's a crazy driver driving right in front of us. So all those that open-ended questions that cannot be answered by just looking at historic data or by traditional machine learning. That's why in 2016, Google introduced this algo called AlphaGo, where they use that to beat the Korean Go championship. And that is what we consider to be the beginning of modern AI. Now, the major difference between the modern AI versus traditional machine learning is they are looking at leading indicator. 
the algo is learning in real time. It's trying to make adjustment to its decisions in real time instead of being a fixed model and just look at historic lagging indicator. So that's why on the high level side, what we believe we are differentiated versus others. Great. And picking up a little bit more on supervised machine learning models versus reinforcement, do you believe that you're quite unique at this stage using the reinforcement learning techniques? Do you think that's still pretty nascent as a tool for investment professionals at this stage? Yeah, I do believe so. Because first of all, AI is not magic. Like we're not looking at alphas with 100% accuracy. If I have an alpha with 100% accuracy, I wouldn't have any risk control. I would just take a one-time bet <laughs> of all. Yeah. However, the alphas we're having is only with, say, 53, 54% of accuracy, which means... To use an analogy, it's like when you go to Grand Central and then if you see a $100 bill on the floor, it will be easily, quickly picked up. However, if you see a quarter or a dime, there are a lot of them and people don't bother to pick them up. So what we do is we try to target a $100 bill, but if we don't find them, we try to target those quarters and dimes. And then we combine them together and we cumulate that. So by law of large numbers, those alpha ensembling will help us get a strong alpha. Thank you. I love those analogies about picking up the $100 bills versus the quarters and the dimes and the idea that you're really trying to do all of them. But I'd imagine that the $100 bills are just few and far between because that space would already be competitive and picked up by others. Yes, that will be very easily to be arbitrated that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think you used the word law of large numbers there. And you also talked about accuracy rates in the 53, 54, 55% range, which I guess is very high and commendable for investment professionals as a whole. But if it's all about the law of large numbers, does that mean that you ultimately want to have lots of different alphas out there, lots of different trading signals that you can put together? Yes, exactly. So the way our system works is we are trying to combine a lot of alphas together and then we assemble them to generate a combined conviction. Like, for example, right now we have alphas in four different horizons. We have alphas target to forecast intraday horizon. We have the alphas target to forecast weekly horizon, biweekly horizon, and the longest one is monthly horizon. So by separating the alphas forecastability into different time horizons, we increase the breadth of the strategy. It's like a multi-platform approach where you diversify your different risk attributions. And also for each of the strategy, we have many different RFS, which were targeted to angle different areas. For example, we have news events alpha, we have price volume alpha, we have quantitative alpha, and we have alternative data offer. We collect all different kinds of data to generate those convictions which covers different angles of the market. Wow. And you just have 10 employees, I think you said. So it's amazing to think of these hundreds or perhaps thousands of alphas that you create with such a small team. Yes, that's the benefit of the modern AI approach, because we're not trying to exhaust human power by hiring hundreds of thousands of people and trying to generate new alphas, new ideas by human. Instead, our researchers are focusing on generating new ideas in terms of how to better 
enhance our AI system. So mm. the AI system will automatically come up with new alphas, new ideas for us. Incredible. So I wanted to ask you, what are the key benefits to these sorts of techniques? And I think you've already answered so many of them. The fact that this is scalable, the fact that this is diversified. Are there any other benefits to this sort of a technique versus other quant hedge funds or versus other fundamental investors that you would really draw out? To answer the questions of, say, the investment edge compared to, say, traditional machine learning versus AI, our approach is we take a combination of high daily hit rate with a positive skill. Now, a daily hit rate of more than 53% is high. However, it won't be as impressive if we doesn't combine that with a positive skill. Most of the managers have to compensate one for the other. That's why if you look at all the HFRI index, you see almost all the managers have negative skills in order to achieve a high daily hit rate. However, we were able to combine the positive daily hit rate with more than 53% with a positive skill. And that's because we have this dynamic risk allocations. So we were able to predict in the future whether we should see increasing opportunity and thus we should increase our bet size or we should say less opportunity and thus we should reduce our bet size. Now, that's embedded in our AI system from day one. So for the past 1,800 days, over seven years, this has helped improve our overall return by more than 10% and has a monthly hit rate of more than 64%. That's how powerful AI is compared to traditional machine learning. So you spoke there about having both that high hit rate, over 50, well over 50%, but also having the positive skew, which I think is reflecting the upside vol versus the downside vol. Can you explain what exactly you mean by positive skew and why that's such a good thing to have alongside the high hit rate? Sure. So skew is evaluation of both the symmetry and the positive versus downside vol. Yeah. So positive skill means you have positive asymmetry and you have more upside vol than downside vol. Right. And unfortunately, in order to achieve that, most managers will need to compensate that with the accuracy level, the daily hit rate. Mm. However, for us, we were able to get a positive daily hit rate of more than 53% combined with a positive skill. Now, what that means is you have more upside vol than downside vol. And I guess to prove that out, you need the benefit of time because over time, one would hope that you don't see those big left tail events, but you continue to churn away with the high hit rates. Is that right? Yeah. So all of the series we talk about, you need kind of law of large numbers to prove that. If you have only one, two, three data points, obviously neither of the probability theory will work, right? You need a large sample size. That's why we say, hey, over one or two days, you couldn't tell you need a longer period of sample size in order to evaluate. Thank you so much, Renee. Well, I think the benefits to what you're doing are, well, they're both fascinating, but also loud and clear to me. So can we turn to the challenges and the pushback and perhaps the skepticism that I'm sure you also see? Yes. So can we start with market efficiency? Do you get the pushback that 
but markets are efficient. You know, how on earth can complex AI really find alphas in here? Sure, and that's absolutely a fair question. Market are largely but not perfectly efficient. Markets are mostly noise, random, unpredictable, but occasionally it exhibit tradable signals attached to the non-tradable noise. So oftentimes when I heard people complaining, well, the alternative data are interesting, but they are not so useful because their signal-to-noise ratio are too high, it's because most of them are only looking at lagging indicators. If you only look at historic data and you try to identify patterns in the historic data, of course, that's going to have a higher requirement in terms of how noise your data is. And so AI is best suited to capture those nonlinear signals that buried in this noise that can mainly observable through sophisticated data analysis by looking at leading indicators. Now, conventional approach to generate tradable signals focus on lagging indicators that can weakly predict future returns. The lag indicators, they do work occasionally, like value, momentum, dividend, yield. Sometimes they work from time to time. But what they rely on is a thesis that history repeats itself. So when history doesn't repeat itself, it caused a challenge. For example, March 2020, when COVID hit the market. That's something we never see before. And so all the models that looking at historic data or lacking in informations were challenged during that time. And on the other hand, AI harnessed data to look for leading indicators that can probabilistically forecast future returns and is constantly learning and updating itself in real time. That's why we not only deliver good returns in March when the market were down 30%, we also deliver good returns in April when the market rebound 20%. In those fast-changing market environment, it shows how powerful AI is compared to traditional machine learning or how important leading indicator is compared to lagging indicator. That's a great example, actually, that March 2020 market drawdown and then bottoming, I think, in mid-March and then the April 2020 recovery. Thank you so much. So you've covered quite a few of the challenges that I wanted to ask you about. The aren't markets efficient type challenge and also the challenge that I hear quite often, which is that within the financial domain and the markets domain, the signal to noise ratio is too low to really find alphas. And I think you've answered there that that's certainly not the case if you use the right techniques and the right models and you have a large number of signals via the law of large numbers. But are there any other weaknesses to your strategies that you would highlight? What concerns you? What pitfalls and risks are you vulnerable to? Well, that's a very important question. (laughs) (laughs) So the biggest myth about AI is like people believe AI can do everything. That's not true, at least not in the financial market. AI does not give you 100% accuracy. If I have 100% accuracy of alpha, I don't need to have any risk control. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, what we have is 52-53% of accuracy, and we collect a lot of them, and we assemble them and have a combined conviction of all. And another biggest challenge, I think, not only for AI, but for all the quant managers is overfitting. 
Overfitting is the biggest enemy of all. For AI, it's probably less important as compared to traditional machine learning approach because traditional machine learning only learns from historic data. And that's why it has much higher requirement in terms of, say, quality of the data. For AI, because it can do noise canceling at a much better scale, much better way, it's less of a concern. However, we still pay a lot of attention to overfitting. Like, for example, when you look at the performance of the alpha, you not only look at the in-sample performance, which is the training data set, you also look at the all-sample performance, which is the real trading performance. Yeah. Quite often we see, at least from my experience, from the traditional machine learning managers, their in-sample accuracy and out-sample accuracy are quite different. Now, for AI... It's a different story. We do expect in-sample performance and outside performance are consistent. But in order to achieve that, we have to set up rigorous rules to filter out which alphas are true alpha and which are result of full signal or uh, overfitting. So I guess the other challenge I often hear with all machine learning and AI techniques is that they're a bit of a black box and that the portfolio manager in charge and or the allocator is not certain of the why. Why are you investing in a certain set of stocks and sectors and themes at a given point in time? What do you say to that, Renee? That's a very reasonable question and got asked a lot of times by the allocators. Yeah. The, how do you explain why your AI model is making money or not making money? So I guess that goes back to the interpretability of AI model. Because it's not a linear model, it's much more sophisticated. Like, for example, for linear model, we assume all the features are independent. However, for AI model, because it's a net structure, it's like our human brain, which has many different layers, and each layer has different features, and each feature can have a coefficient or correlation with each other. So it's hard for us to see from outside specifically which feature works in which way. However, on the high level, we can still tell what kind of information the AI model uses. Now, in general, there are two major approaches. One is called supervised machine learning, and the other is called unsupervised machine learning. For supervised machine learning, the model will add an extra layer of marking or labeling the data. So it's deciding which data I should feed into the model before it starts feeding the information into the model. Now, there's another approach, which is called unsupervised machine learning, which is the model just feeds all the data it can find into the model. Now, there are pros and cons for both. For supervised machine learning, you are at the risk of committing type 1 error because the model might label something useful to be unuseful and throw it away. Now, for unsupervised machine learning, you are at the risk of type 2 error, which is the model might include something that is not related. And so both have their own pros and cons. In my experience, if you have a better understanding of what the models looks like, we will use supervised machine learning, which is what we do. If you don't have any idea of what the model looks like, and you want the model to completely explore all the possible scenarios, then we use unsupervised machine learning. 
Thank you. And I do think a point that you've made several times about machine learning techniques being so helpful at finding non-linear relationships is such an important one and one that we definitely need to add to our benefits arguments, which I tried to articulate earlier. I also find it really interesting hearing you talk about the biases and the errors in AI-driven investing, because quite simplistically, one could argue that human behavioral biases and errors are present or may occur from fundamental investors, but should not be present in AI-driven investing. But would you argue that those human-driven biases are just replaced with other machine-driven biases in reality? Yes, I would think so, because think about how much of the information the AI is taking. Like one of the biggest benefits we want to use AI approach is because it's much faster, much efficient compared to human. Now, for our AI system we build, they generate over a thousand offers per day. <laughs> and that's because the AI can look at all the information at a much faster speed, like at a breadth and depth that is imaginable by human. Like, for example, we process over a million pieces of news events data alone. That's impossible for human to read. And some of the data we process, like satellite data, hyperspectrum satellite data, synthetic aperture radar satellite data, they're not even processable by human eyes. So we have to rely on AI techniques to collect and clean all those information and look at the world in all different angles. Thank you. Well, the word that really comes to mind in everything you're saying is scale. This idea that with few humans and few researchers, you can have thousands of alphas and therefore you have this benefit of scale. And as you mentioned before, you have hit rates in, let's say, the 53, 54, 55% range. But with the law of large numbers, that can be immensely powerful. And I guess if all of that is true, I would assume that you really want to maximize the number of bets you can make by maximizing the number of assets you're trading, the number of regions you're looking at, the number of data sets you're taking into account. Is that true? And which assets and regions are you really honing in on right now? That's a great question. So right now, we're treating U.S. and European regions. And yes, we do take ensemble approach by combining all those RFS together to generate a combined conviction. And coming to the data that you leverage, you touched on it earlier, but can you just talk through the main sets of input data that you feed into your models? Yes, absolutely. So there are four different types of data which we feed into the model. And that four different types of data sets basically covers everything. For example, the technical data, which is price volume data, exchange data, some exchange do charge you for providing liquidity, others providing you. And then the quantitative data like momentum, mean reversion, earning yield, a lot of the farmer French factor models, factor PMs trade on those factors. And then fundamental data like analyst forecast, sales forecast, the GDP, the CPI, the fat balance sheet information. And also the alternative data, which includes news events data from traditional news outlets, from the new bloggers, Twitters, and then real-time GPS location data, or even satellite data. So those four big buckets of data covers every data set which we can imagine. And that is why it helps us to gain such a 
breadth of the different type of RFS we have and different frequencies of the RFS we have. And from those four different major groups of input data that you use, are there any that particularly stand out as being particularly alpha generating to you? I think the technical data, we believe it's been heavily traded and arbitrated away uh, much more compared to other type of data like alternative data or like fundamental balance sheet information data because not everyone has ability to collect and clean those data. So that kind of give us an edge. Thank you so much. So it's the fundamental and the alternative data that's really up there for you in terms of the alpha potential. Yes, we do believe so. Fascinating. Thank you. And you spoke there about cleaning the data and the investment you make really in ingesting high quality data. How do you weigh up the relative benefits of the data itself and the quality of the data and the history of the data with the quality of your AI model, which, as we've discussed so far, is clearly of critical importance. Because for context, I have heard from many other quant investors, not necessarily AI-driven quant investors, but many quant investors tell me that the data is the most important thing, the cleanliness of the data, the history of the data. And if that's true, then how much time and effort do you put into that? That's a very important question. I do believe for a lot of managers, data is very important. And so are we. Like we pay a lot of attention to keep adding new data sources into our AI system. So the model can keep broadening its depths by looking at different kinds of data throughout the years. Like, for example, during COVID, we added the network traffic data because everybody was locked in at home. So the food traffic data was sparse. Yeah. And then we also added the air traffic tower data to track how much of the passenger airplane, commercial airplane regains their transportability. And then also last year, we added the macroeconomic information data, which helps model not only see the company's specific information, but also see the broader picture. So from that aspect, data is definitely very important. Now, one of our edge, which makes us differentiated, is we're not trying to buy data from third-party vendors like most of our peers are. The reason is because we do believe that the data vendor's interest is not exactly in line with the manager's interest. Because if I'm a data vendor, I have a good data source, I want to sell it to as many managers as possible. So quickly, what we see historically is we found once the good data has came out, at first it works pretty well, and then it quickly arbitrates away when more and more people start trading on it. So what we did instead is we collect and clean majority of the data in-house because of the supercomputer-like infrastructure we built. And by doing so, we will not only help us have a better quality control of the data because we know how the data was collected, how the data was cleaned, and so we can know, okay, if the data has an issue or needs to be fixed or upgraded, and also help us to have a better understanding of what kind of data we should feed into the model or let the model decide if and how to use it. Yes, that makes total sense. I guess it gives you much more control and flexibility around all of the input variables that you can use. Yes, and also help reduce correlation. Yeah. So you've really laid out the huge benefits, I think, to your techniques and why they're differentiated and why they have edge. And I think you've also discussed many of the challenges and the risks and the pushback and the skepticism that you can face and how you really respond to that. Can we turn to the future? 
how do you see the industry evolving from here? And what you're doing is so unusual, really, in the context of other asset managers and so differentiated. Do you see the world catching up and do you see others trying to do what you're doing? And if so, how will you retain this edge? Yes, that's a very good question. Now, in order to answer that, I think First, it's a very good thing that people began to realize how powerful AI is. Now, I have to thank ChatGPT because before ChatGPT, it's difficult for us to explain the difference between traditional machine learning versus modern AI. However, when people see ChatGPT, they can tell the difference between that versus Siri, Alexa. You can feel you're talking to a human instead of talking to a machine. So that gives them the first impression of the difference between traditional machine learning versus modern AI. Now, in terms of the competitions and people trying to get into the space, absolutely, all the time. Definitely, we are going to see more competitions in the space. However, we do believe that there are certain barriers to entry for people to truly get into the space. We've been doing research in AI since 2014, two years before Google even published their AlphaGo paper. And we've seen through the benefit and the the cons of AI. Like AI is not magic, for example. Like there's no AI that can predict the market 100%. And so in order to maintain your competitive edge and run your successful portfolio, you need to combine AI with tight risk controls so that when market have a pattern, your AI can catch more alpha by allocating more risk. And when the market doesn't have pattern, then you need to tail down your risk. And also, in order to truly enter the space and build your infrastructure, you need to incorporate modern supercomputer-like infrastructure. Like a lot of our competitors actually built their infrastructure 10, 20 years ago. Back then, GPU, TPU didn't even exist. So nowadays, in order to catch on the trend, they need to rebuild the entire infrastructure. So they need to physically have someone rewrite all the code. For example, GPU programs on CUDA. That's different from all the previous infrastructure on C++ or Python. So that is another barrier to entry where if you already have a legacy system in place, it's difficult to find someone you can trust and rewrite your entire code because that's your entire IP. So in general, we do believe the competition is going to be keeping up. We think it's a good thing because AI is a very broad space. And then we're combining all of those alphas together. We're ensembling them. We're not trading each one of them independently. So that's why I think there's a huge future here where everybody can do research and have their own emphasis. But we do believe that AI has tremendous potential and tremendous benefit compared to traditional machine learning. Thank you so much. Well, it does sound like, on the one hand, there are huge barriers to entry and huge amounts of technological investment, really, to be able to enter this space. But on the other hand, it's really heartening, really, to hear you say that there is space for many others. It's still such a new and arguably relatively niche space to be in, but extremely promising in terms of the returns. Well, thank you so much, Renee. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it and I hope our listeners will as well. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk through all of this in such detail. 
Thank you, Eloise. It's definitely a great pleasure to be here today and share my experience with the audience. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to learn more about Rene's work and Neo Ivy Capital, then please do take a look at their website, which will be in the show notes. Otherwise, if you have feedback or questions, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JPMorgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, JPMorgan. They are not the product of JPMorgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.